We are just kind of going through the fifth way and the major concepts in the fifth way. For those of you who are here for the first time or I haven't caught the uh, series, the fifth way is a book that I wrote several years ago and have re-released in a new edition. And so it seemed like it was a good time to talk about it and to kind of go through the major issues because the uh, the tenet of the book is the backdrop, is the basis for what we teach here at The Effect and, and how we proceed in terms of approaching Jesus' message from a first century Hebrew Aramaic point of view, because that really puts us right in the sandals of the people who listen to him first. To say that we can know Jesus' intent uh, as preserved in the New Testament over 2,000 years um, is difficult. But to know what his words would have meant in the original language to his first hearers is something that we can get much closer to. So if we can do that, if we can understand what his first hearers would have understood, then we're getting closer. And that is the problem, because we are modern Westerners trying to get ourselves into an ancient Eastern worldview. And that is a journey to the journey. And that's what the book is about. In the first two uh, Sundays that we've been going through the series, what we talked about was this radical new way of looking at God. And that's what Jesus was trying to get across. He called it good news. He called it kingdom. He was trying to get across that although his people had been settled into over a couple of centuries, a legalistic institutional way of connecting with their God. Jesus was trying to literally blow that up from the inside out and take away anything that stood between the direct contact of the people with their Father in heaven. That required this radically different look at the nature of God. Jesus called him Abba, which means Daddy. It was an intimate relationship. It was a connective relationship. He called the message good news, which meant that there was a love from this Father, this Daddy, that you could not lose because you couldn't gain it. It just self-existed. And so it wasn't about temple sacrifices. It wasn't about following the rules that brought you into the approval of this father. It was already there, already existing. And all that was needed was for each person to enter in, to connect with, to embrace. And so this radically different way of looking at God through Jesus' example, through Jesus' life, through Jesus' teaching, because he and the father were one, necessitates a different look at what we think the primary metaphor for our relationship with God is. We talked about last week how the church has settled on the image of the warrior by and large. That is an imperialistic, militaristic, a taking of the land for God, a, a, uh, a closing of the deal in terms of the way that we missionize and evangelize and, and, uh, and work through our salvation. But that Jesus never really used that metaphor. He used the gardener which is the slow tending, never coercing, just connecting with, nurturing along, patiently showing up day after day, planting and tending, keeping an eye on the rhythms of nature and how all that affected the outcome, but not in charge of the outcome at the same time. Each person had his or her own choice to make, and Jesus never coerced it. Come follow me. But if you didn't, that was okay because he'll be asking again the next moment and the moment after that and the one after that. That's what the farmer, that's what the gardener is all about. So these radically different ways of looking at God and our relationship, the dynamics of our relationship with him, are going to necessitate a radically different approach to how we go about getting there. How do we get to the place that we actually trust 
And any time that the, the New Testament says believe in God, believe in Jesus, the word there is never separated from trust, the notion of trust. So trust really is the bottom line. It's not enough to just understand and assent and agree with your head. It has to move through some sort of action that takes us into experience, that brings us to the place of trust. We need to actually trust. How do we know if we trust? Because our anxiety and stress and fear level goes down. So to actually be able to revel in that relationship, to enjoy that relationship, is what kingdom is all about. You can't do that unless you've gone through this process. And so Jesus is trying to explain the process. And the way that I came, can come the closest to trying to describe what it feels like to enter into this radically different relationship is this notion of spiritual common sense. Okay, what's that? <laughs> well, let's start with common sense. You all know what common sense is? Uh, we don't know what common sense is, do we? Uh, what's common sense? See, that's the thing. Look at, look at your, your bulletins, or I don't, I don't know if uh, James is going to get this one up, but there's a, the first quote there from Rene Descartes, I think is great. Remembering that this was written like 500 years ago, 500 years ago, and he writes, nothing is more fairly distributed than common sense. No one thinks he needs more of it than he already has. <laughs> think about that for a second. If you didn't laugh, think about that for a second. Everybody thinks they have common sense. It's the other guy who doesn't have common sense, right? We have common sense. But what is common sense? How do we actually define it? And that's the difficulty. We don't really know. It's hard to define. It's one of those things like civilization. How do you define that? Well, here's an actual textbook dictionary definition. Sound and prudent judgment based on a simple perception of the situation or facts that is independent of specialized knowledge, training, or the like. Normal native intelligence. Did you get that? Sound and prudent judgment based on a simple perception of the situation or facts. And here's the important part. Independent of specialized knowledge or training. So it's not going to school that gives you common sense. We all know that. In fact, some of the most educated people have the least common sense. Kind of like that guy in the picture there sawing off the limb that he's sitting on. You know, we all know that somehow that street smarts and experience and other things give us the common sense, not the academic effort. So we got that, but it really doesn't take us too far. I found some other more interesting definitions that I wanted to try to share with you. Josh Billings don't exactly know who he is, but he says that common sense is the knack of seeing things as they are and doing things as they ought to be done. That's not too bad. Seeing things as they are and doing things as they ought to be done. Another one, common sense is judgment without reflection, shared by an entire class, an entire nation, or the entire human race. Common sense is, ge is genius dressed in its working clothes. I like that one. Common sense is genius, dressed in his working clothes. Guess who said that? Ralph Waldo Emerson. Gotta love that guy. Thomas Huxley. Science is organized common sense, where many a beautiful theory was killed by an ugly fact. And then he finishes it. All truth in the long run is only common sense clarified. All truth in the long run is only common sense clarified. William James, common sense and a sense of humor are the same thing, moving at different speeds. A sense of humor is just common sense dancing. I like that. 
Samuel Butler, the voice of the Lord is the voice of common sense, which is shared by all that is. And this is something that I want you to really get a hold of as we go through this, because we have learned not to use our common sense in terms of the spiritual. And yet common sense is the voice of the Lord. Common sense is what God has given us to lead us back to him. But if we don't use it, then we are just prey to every notion that comes across the table, whether it's leading in the right direction or not. The wisdom of the wise is an uncommon degree of common sense. There is nothing more uncommon than common sense. Frank Lloyd Wright said that. Everybody gets so much information all day long that they lose their common sense. I think we got that one. Gertrude Stein. And my personal favorite, if you have an ounce of common sense and one good friend, you don't need an analyst. Joan Crawford, by the way. So, if you really have common sense, then there are going to be certain things that are going to be clear to you. There are going to be certain things that you know sort of innately, right? And i got to come up with a couple of those that I want to read you, too. You know? If you have common sense, then you just know that you should never, under any circumstances, take a sleeping pill and a laxative on the same night. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Sorry. Sorry, honey. Embarrassing my wife here. If you have common sense, you know not to worry about what people think. They don't do it very often. <laughs> if you must choose between two evils, pick the one you've never tried before. Uh, a person who is nice to you but rude to the waiter is not a nice person. You know, get that? Common sense. Common sense tells you that for every action, there is an equal and opposite government program. Common sense tells you, if you look like your passport picture, you probably really need the trip. You've got to think about that one for a second, don't you? Common sense tells you that a, conscious, a conscience is what hurts when all of your other parts feel so good. Common sense tells you that no husband has ever been shot while doing the dishes. Come on. Common sense tells you that people who want to share their religious views with you almost never want you to share yours with them. Common sense tells you that you will never find anybody who can give you a clear and compelling reason why we observe daylight savings time. Common sense tells you you should never say anything to a woman that even remotely suggests that you think she's pregnant unless you can see an actual baby emerging from her at that moment. <laughs> and common sense tells you never be afraid to try something new because you'll remember that the ark was built by a lone amateur but a large group of highly skilled professionals built the Titanic come on and what this all tells us is that common sense tells us that there is not one shred of evidence that supports the notion that life is supposed to be so serious we're supposed to laugh we're supposed to have fun. You know, we can even talk about, talk about a laxative on Sunday morning. It's okay. We can do that. We can have fun. And this is the thing. What clear idea of common sense, now that we have this clear idea of common sense, what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about spiritual common sense? And that's the next thing that I want to just read just a couple of paragraphs from this chapter in the fifth way and see if this can start to lock it down for us. Faith isn't rational, but it isn't irrational either. 
Faith is an assumption we make about truth that allows us to go out and experience that truth. Call it extra rational. Common sense still applies. Before it was beaten out of us by the creeds and doctrines and dogma of the church, before it was leached out of us by the relativism and nihilism and materialism of secular philosophy and humanism, there was a spiritual common sense that we were all born with and which, if we squint and strain, can still be glimpsed flitting around the edges of our awareness. It's that part of us that asks all the quote-unquote wrong questions, the ones that lack faith, the ones that make teachers squirm or angrily reprimand their students. But the questions persist even if we stop asking them. They don't dissipate when there are no answers to be found. And if we've learned to be satisfied with a particular school of thought, a church, or a theology, there's still something underneath that remains unsettled, unsettling, which is exactly what makes the teacher defensive and angry at having the edges of the veneer pried up by impertinent but commonsensical students. Passionate common sense, passionate common sense, is the check and the balance, the only foothold against a slide into superstition and spiritual irrelevance. It seems we need permission once again to legitimately use our common sense in the realm of the spiritual. Then let's give it. Because in terms of our faith, there are many common sense questions to ask. Like a child shaking off the question of how Santa could possibly descend every chimney during a single night in favor of the promise of Christmas morning, we shake off questions about God's nature and the presence of evil, about sin and judgment, salvation and damnation, scripture and science, in favor of the promise of a secure faith. It's pure irony that in the name of faith, we should stop asking such questions when to stop asking is the first sign that we are no longer serious about our journey of faith, about following the way of Yeshua. And Yeshua is the Aramaic Hebrew name of Jesus. I made a big accusation in there. I said that the church has beaten common sense out of us. And uh, is there any evidence for that? Well, the first thing that the church did in my lifetime, and probably in many of yours, was to teach us to believe without question, to teach us not to doubt, to tell us that doubt was the opposite of faith, and without doubt we couldn't have any faith. I remember in first grade, growing up in, in Catholic school, being taught by the nuns, I would often lay awake at night and try to understand what it was that they were telling me. Right out of the Baltimore Catechism, we would chant the Baltimore Catechism. I don't know if any of you remember that, you know. I remember one of them, God is, God always was, and God always will be. I remember as a first grader sitting at home staring at the ceiling thinking, okay, I could get the is part, I could even get the always will be part, but always was? I mean, how do you do that? I remember in my mind imagining a quarter that just went back and back and back and back and it never ended and I was trying to figure out how can something not have a beginning? I couldn't figure that out. Couldn't ask the nuns, they were you know, 10 feet tall and had those wing things on their heads. I wasn't going to ask them, you know. But I thought about it. I questioned it. I wanted to know. I remember them telling me about a modeled soul because every time you, had, you committed a venial sin, a smaller sin, you got a spot on your soul. And if you had enough of those, it modeled you. And if it went all black, then it equaled a mortal sin. And I was trying to figure out how that worked. And I remember picturing God, you know, as this old bearded man with the white robe and the thunderbolts way up high on a, on a throne someplace. 
and trying to figure out how it was that I was supposed to connect with this God. But I also remember by my first communion in third grade, I wasn't asking questions anymore. It was just settled. It's what I believed. It's what I was taught. And by my confirmation, even more so. But by my 20s, everything had fallen apart in terms of that, and I had just moved on. I actually wasn't asking questions anymore, but I wasn't practicing faith anymore either. And by my mid-30s, when life had caught up to me and mugged me and and it was just broken completely, that's when I started questioning everything, asking all the questions, and going in directions that had nothing to do, really, with Christianity, and that on purpose. I figured I'd already done that and it was time to move on to something new. And so at that point, I'm back in the hunt again, but I'm not back in my faith again. And that was the problem. You know, I didn't learn anything outside the party line. I remember at that point in my mid-30s, I'd back, come back to a Christian church And I was thinking of going into seminary to try to learn more and to uh, talk about possibly moving into uh, pastoral training. Several of the pastors I knew tried to actually talk me out of going to seminary because they said modern seminaries are where you go to lose your faith, not to find it. What do they mean by that? They meant that in a modern seminary, you were exposed to so much different teaching throughout Christianity and Christendom itself that you are now learning something outside the party line. They didn't want you to learn anything outside of what the church taught. And if you take a look at that second quote there, this one is from me. And I apologize at the presumption of putting me between Rene Descartes and, uh, and, Roy Tillich, and Paul Tillich, but you know, just go with it for now. You know, I wrote, How valuable is a faith that is dependent on the maintenance of ignorance? Such a faith is indistinguishable from superstition. Rene Descartes again. If you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt, as far as possible, all things. Because if you don't doubt, you are never going to find what really is true. You will only continue to find what you already think you know. We've gone through this before in here. We've been taught that doubt is the opposite of faith. But is it really the opposite of faith? See, think of it this way. Is fear the opposite of courage? We've talked about this. No, it's not. Fear is the ability to act in the present. Courage is the ability to act in the presence of fear. Without fear, there is no courage. Fear defines courage. Fear makes courage possible. You can't have courage if there's no fear. And it's the same thing with doubt and faith. Faith is the ability to act in the presence of doubt. The doubt defines the faith. There is no faith without doubt. If there is certainty, absolute certainty, there is no faith. If we don't doubt, if we haven't doubted our faith, it's because we haven't pushed the edges. It's because we haven't taken our journey seriously enough to get out to a place beyond our certainty, to a place where God really exists. Because if we think for an instant that we've got God all figured out, that our faith is now that certain, that there is nothing else that can rock our boat, then we don't know our God. And so this was what started to happen to me in my 30s. I realized that something was limiting, was trying to limit 
And it couldn't happen that way if I was really going to go after this faith, go after what it was that I was trying to do. We must keep questioning, have to keep questioning. A few years ago, when we put up the, uh, the Effect website, I was amazed at how suddenly you had a venue where you could get people from all over the country and all over the world. It's a marvelous thing. I got an email from a man in Minnesota, but I realized quickly he was taking me to task. He wanted to know who I was, what this effect was, what we were teaching, and what was going on. So I answered him politely, and he came back with another barrage of questions and another barrage of questions. And finally, I emailed him and said, um, what's, what's this all about? You know, why, why this interest, and, and why is your interest so urgent? And you know, I said it politely, but he was really grilling me over the coals here. Then he told me that he has a 17-year-old son, and, and he was an elder in his church and a leader in the church and had taught his family and brought them up within his faith. And now his 17-year-old son was hitting him with everything that he had, questioning everything. And he asked him a specific question. He said, Dad, I want to know if what you believe is really true or just what you believe. What a question. Think about that. Is what you believe really true or is it just what you believe? What you have accepted, what you have heard, the hearsay that you have come to just trust in your life. But is it true? And why is it only the 17-year-olds that are asking these questions? So when he asked the boy, where are you getting all this stuff? He handed him the, uh, <laughs> the domain to the, um, the effects website. And so he called me. You know, the boy had somehow found us and was getting all the subversive thought that he was taking back to his dad. But, you know, we talked after a few weeks and the father got more and more comfortable that, you know, I wasn't the Antichrist or anything and that what we were doing was somehow, you know, responsible and, and kind of rolled with it. But it's, is it only going to be the young people, only the 17-year-olds in our churches in our families that are asking such questions? Because I'll tell you right now, the younger generations are asking. The younger generations are searching. And the church is losing many of these young people because the church is not moving with the, co- the container within which the content of the gospel is placed. We have lost our ability to really communicate. These kids look around and they say, you know, the emperor has no clothes. You know that story about the emperor's new clothes? All right. So nobody wants to admit that they can't see the clothes because the swindlers of the emperor had told them that means that you're stupid. That means you're not fit for your position. So everybody's going along with it until a young boy just blurts out, he's got no clothes. He's naked. Our young people are looking at the church and saying, where is the substance? Where is that which we are looking for and, and need? Because the world is changing dramatically, if you haven't noticed. The world that is going to be inherited by our younger generations is not the world that we grew up in, unless you're young enough. And they see this. And they see the faith of their parents, and they see the faith of the, of the adults around them, and they don't think it's going to have what they need to get through. And so they're asking these, question, these questions. We have to take a look at what they're doing how they're processing. They're exploring Buddhism. They're exploring Eastern philosophy. They're exploring neo-paganism. They're exploring secularism. They're even exploring Eastern Orthodoxy as opposed to Western Christianity. 
because these philosophies and these modes give them something positive and specific to do that is taking them on a journey. And this stuff isn't theoretical for me, particularly. I got a call from a man, a recovering alcoholic, who came through our program at one point. And he was talking to me about his son, who's a high school age boy. The father is a recovering alcoholic. The mother is a staunch Catholic. And the boy, who was being brought along in, in Catholic training all along, suddenly refused to take his confirmation. And the parents didn't think too much of it, you know, until he announced to them that he was now following a religion called Asatru. I had to look it up. <laughs> Asatru is a modern readaptation of the ancient Norse pagan religions or, or Germanic pagan religions uh, of the medieval era. You know, you talk about Odin and Thor and Loki and all those gods. It's a, it's a, it's a restructuring of that. But as I looked about the tenets and what they believed, they said that they're all about roots, they're all about connection, and they're all about coming home. And even though it's decidedly non-Christian, it's all about roots and connection and coming home. For a boy in a family that's tossed by the dysfunction that he was facing, doesn't that sound good? To have some roots and connection, a place to go home to? Sometimes in the action of our faith and our churches, our institution, we lose sight of the fact that people need roots and connection and a homecoming. He asked me what to do. You know, what would you do? His wife was absolutely flipping out, (laughs) you know, that he was doing this. And uh, she didn't want him in her house. She didn't want him near her kids. I said, look, if you can, study with him. Learn this about this religion with him and always contrast it with Jesus. Compare and contrast with Jesus. Show him that this is not mutually exclusive. Maybe the way that he learned about his faith and learned about Jesus seems so. But instead of hitting him head on, because I can tell you that he is on a search and he's searching over here, but it's not going to last there. If he's really seeking after truth, he's going to go through a whole series. And that's exactly what happened. The father, to his credit, did that, you know, worked with him, sat with him, learned with him, let him tell him about his newfound religion. He told him about Jesus in the best way that he could. And then suddenly, as the mother amped up the volume and, and, and put the screws in, then he announced that he had turned to Satanism. Okay? And then from there, he went to the Temple of Set, which is an offshoot of modern Satanism. But you know, Satanism, if you hear that word, you think something that is really not what Satanism is today. Today, it's more of an intellectual philosophy. It's a, not a worship of the devil. It's a worship of the self-knowledge that we can gain. It's really a Gnostic, a, a regeneration of Gnosticism, which elevates knowledge above all. But this idea of if you can get more knowledge, you can self-evolve. You can get the things that you want and need in life. And eventually, you can maybe even deify yourself. In its more malignant forms, it's about the ends justifying the means, and you get what you want by taking it out of the hide of somebody else. So it doesn't have that Christian morality, of course. But here's this boy moving through these different things. Last email that I got, he's back investigating Christianity again. See, he needed to take a journey to come back around. But now he's asking questions of his father about Christianity that he can't answer. He's getting right down to it. He's asking these bedrock questions, common sense questions, that if we haven't prepared ourselves in a common sense way with our faith, we won't be able to answer either. 
I'm hoping that we get together. We're trying to arrange that so you know I can add my voice to the chorus for this young man. But the point is that our young people are going through this process. They haven't lost their common sense. They know that something is going on and they want to find out, is this stuff really true or is it just what we believe? And that's the key. That's the key. Trying to get there. In reconsidering Christianity, he's made this full circle. And we have to ask ourselves, what's happening here? What's going on? Is this a cycle just repeating, or is there something else happening? And I wanted to read you another passage from the fifth way and see if this helps. Many of us have stopped asking common sense questions or never began in the first place. We have simply accepted the received tenets of our faith on faith. So the task is left to our children, the 17-year-olds among us, with the audacity to look behind the curtain. And they are looking and asking. Their whole generation, aided by a few of their elders, is looking and asking. And the rest of us are uncomfortable, perhaps defensive, and increasingly irrelevant to their search. Call it postmodern thought or emerging church or blatant heresy. We can try to resist but it's all about the common sense God gave each of us inevitably reasserting itself after too much time away. All new human ideas and questions begin as heresy, advance to orthodoxy, and end in superstition, to paraphrase Thomas Huxley. Did you get that? Begin as heresy, advance to orthodoxy, and end in superstition. But because something is shunned as heresy doesn't mean it's also not true, And accepting something as orthodox doesn't make it true. And of course, by the time orthodoxy devolves into superstition, all common sense and critical thought is lost. Prevailing opinion has nothing to do with truth. The two are as far apart as the East is from the West, intertwined only in the mind of the person who has lost touch with common sense. When Marion and I first decided to marry, we were told by our pastor that we didn't, he didn't think he could marry us. We asked him to marry us because we had both been married before. And as he read the scripture, Matthew 19, Matthew 5, he said that you had only one biblical reason, one biblical ground for divorce, and that was adultery. Neither one of us had experienced that in our previous marriages. So the marriage could not be dissolved biblically. And therefore, if you remarried, it was adultery. Now, that comes from a, just a literal, surface, simple meaning reading of those texts. But now let's apply common sense here. And of course, I was hit, and Marion was hit by this like a ton of bricks. I said, are you kidding me, really? And then they told me also that I couldn't be a leader in the church if I remarried because an elder of the church had to be the husband of only one wife, which they interpreted in a series instead of all at one time, like polygamy. And so that also didn't make any common sense to me either, especially since they had a drug addict who was also a male prostitute and a thief and everything else to support his habit. He was up being a leader, but my divorce was now going to keep me or make me ineligible to lead. And how would all this work? Did divorce now become the one unforgivable sin? I watched pastors literally sending spouses back to abusive marriages, back to abusive homes because of their reading of this scripture. How wrong is that? How much does that violate common sense? What are we supposed to do with all of this? How are we supposed to get through? How are we supposed to get back 
to an understanding of Scripture that allows us to keep our common sense intact. This is what we have to get to. Remembering historically that in our own Bible, we have the model of the heroes of our faith who did break out, who did question the established line of thought, the orthodoxy of their day. I mean, it goes all the way back to Abram, soon to be called Abraham. He questioned the orthodoxy that there were many gods in the pantheon. He, questions, he questioned this idea of polytheism. And through his connection with God, understood that there was just one God. How revolutionary was that? He was alone in the Middle East, completely alone. Everyone else had a polytheistic set. And he comes in and says, no, there's just one God. Jesus questioned the legalism and institutionalism that Judaism had become a thousand, fifteen hundred years after Abraham. It had become this institution of pure rule following, of just being completely legal in order to be approved by God. And Jesus was blowing the roof off of that by trying to take out the middleman and bring us back in connection. After 300 years, or for the first 300 years of Christianity after the Reformation, everybody was questioning everything. It's so interesting that we think of the early church as having one voice and one mind, but it was anything but. Everybody was trying to interpret what this life of Jesus really meant, and they're coming to radically different conclusions, and it was tearing the Eastern Mediterranean apart to the point that when Constantine took power... He called the church council to try to establish an orthodox line of thought. And he did that. And he he unified the Roman Empire around that line of thought. He married the church and the state, he and his sons, over the next hundred years, up into the fifth century. And so finally, finally, after 400 years, you had an orthodox line of thought. The church stood for one thing, one set of beliefs. And they wielded that like a club against anyone who would doubt them. They exiled them, they killed them, they burned them, they took away their properties. They did whatever they needed to do to maintain that orthodox thought. And that lasted for 1,500 years until the Renaissance, until the Age of Enlightenment, until the discoveries of the scientists and the artists and the mathematicians of the late Middle Ages started to blow the roof off of everything that we thought we knew. And the church was there holding the line Remember the, the Galileo and the church? The Galileo affair, it's called. Galileo, with the introduction of the telescope, had viewed all the phases of the planets and the phases of the moons. The moons of Jupiter are still called Galilean in honor of him because he realized that Copernicus 100 years ago was right, that the sun and all the planets didn't revolve around the earth, that the earth wasn't the center of the universe, that the sun was the center and everything revolved around that. But the church objected because that flew in the face of the literal interpretation of scriptures. Scriptures like what? Well, take a look. Scriptures like Psalms 10, 10, 4, and 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And so if the earth never moved, then it couldn't revolve around the sun. And Ecclesiastes 1, 5. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. But that word there for hastening in Hebrew, sha'af, you know what it also means? It means to pant, to pant for, to long for. So a legitimate reading or and translation of this would be, also the sun rises and the sun sets and returns again panting. 
Don't you love that? Or returns or longs to return to its place to start again would be another way that you could render that. What are we dealing with here? We're dealing with poetry. Ecclesiastes is poetry. The Psalms are song lyrics. We know that they're not trying to get literal truth across, but once you have lost your common sense, once you have hammered in the party line, you lose that fact. And Galileo was brought up in front of the Inquisition. He was tried and he was sentenced and he was put under house arrest for almost 10 years until he died because he dared to hold to something that comported with the evidence that he saw and his common sense. Doesn't Jesus tell us that we're not supposed to doubt? Look right above that at Matthew twenty-one, twenty-one. And Jesus answered and said to them, his disciples, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and it will happen. Well, that certainly sounds like orthodoxy to me. He's trying to get us to hold to a faith and not doubt. Now, first of all, let's take care of two things here. There's the fig tree and there's the mountain. What's he talking about there? Because those are figures of speech as well. The fig tree refers to the cursing of the fig tree, but that is told in conjunction with the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus cleansed the temple, what he was saying was that on the outside, this temple symbolizes everything that is supposed to preserve the life of Israel. But inside, it has been debased. It has been turned into a den of thieves. So what looks good on the outside does not have the power to preserve and, and nurture the faith of the people. Same way the fig tree, which happens immediately after, looked like it should have fruit. It had all its leaves, but on further inspection, getting close, it didn't have them. The two things are to be seen together. What Jesus is saying is, you have faith and you don't doubt, then you'll be able to discern the truth. You'll be able to see beneath the veneer, beneath the surface of things, to what really does matter, what really does have the power to preserve life. And then he talks about casting the mountain into the sea. This is a common figure of speech, sort of an idiomatic phrase of the ancient world. We don't realize what obstacles mountains are because we just fly over them or we drive our car through the pass, right? But in the ancient world, a mountain stopped you in its tracks. So to move a mountain meant to overcome the obstacles in your life, the difficulties in your life. And at this stage in the Gospels, many difficulties are coming for Jesus' disciples after he is crucified. But he says, if you have faith and you don't doubt. But here's the thing about the idea of doubt. The word there, both in the Greek and in the Aramaic, mean to separate, to divide, to withdraw from, right? To hesitate, to oppose. It can also mean doubt. But if you think about how the Hebrews were all about action and not about thought, about function over form, that faith for them wasn't what you thought about or what you believed mentally. It was what you did consistently. That the best synonym for faith in Hebrew is steadfastness or perseverance. What Jesus is saying is, if you can continue on steadfastly and not be diverted from your true purpose, if you can hang on and keep moving in a direction, you will be able to discern the truth of things and overcome the obstacles in your life. It's not doubt the way we think of doubt. It's this steadfast motion that never diverts. And so we got to say, how do we look at the scriptures? And even that 
we have to take some common sense. Even that is going to have to go against the party line often because we've been taught a certain way about Scripture. And if we take that to the bank, we're never going to get where Jesus is trying to take us. All of these things are so important. When you think about going further in this historical thing we were doing, you know, you've got the Middle Ages, the the Roman Church controlled all of thought and all of commerce, even controlled kings for 1,500 years. But after this renaissance, this this lid is blown off of scientific thought. After the printing press is, is invented and paper comes from China, you can't keep a lid on it anymore. You can't hold the Bible in Latin all to yourself. People are translating it even though you burn them at the stake. They're still, the word is getting out. And finally, by 1500, you have Martin Luther nailing his theses to the door of Castle Church and the Reformation is on. And so for the last 500 years between that and now, the modern era has sort of locked down and become its own entity. But since World War II, and especially after the social revolution of the 60s, we have what is getting to be known as the postmodern era, where all of those notions, all of that bedrock thinking in arts and architecture and philosophy and religion is being deconstructed and breaking down. And our youngest people are living in that world. They're coming into that world. All these things are being questioned again, except by those who are trying to hold the line. Holding the line can be a good thing, but we have to be able to say, is what we believe really true or just what we believe? And that's the key here. We are moving into a real time of doubt. We're doubting everything. Our culture is doubting everything. That may seem like a horrible thing to you, but I want to submit to you that it's a good thing. Why? Let me read you one more passage from the fifth way. Each of us is responsible for his or her own journey to truth. No one can take it for us, and no one can give us his or hers. The ruby slippers Dorothy wears can take her home at any moment, but no one can tell her how they work. She has to find out for herself. We will be convinced of the truth of something only when we have gone out and become convinced, submitted it to rigorous testing in the laboratory of our lives. People were amazed at Yeshua's teaching because he taught with authority, not as the Pharisees and scribes taught. That is, Yeshua was the same person living or dying. His truths were part of the reality of his life and not a classroom exercise. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the Psalms tell us. Taste and see, not sit and think. For us, as much as for the ancients, we need to get out of our minds and classrooms and into the streets of our lives to find God playing among us. If we're afraid of looking heretical in someone's eyes, we'll never ask the first question, postulate the first idea, or set out on our own journey to truth. Thank God Yeshua and his followers weren't afraid to be called heretics, or drunkards, or gluttons, or Francis of Assisi, Galileo, Martin Luther, or a 17-year-old boy challenging his father's beliefs. If we're afraid to ask the most basic, most common-sense questions, we'll never be able to answer the most relevant question. Who am I? Which itself only has meaning as we come to know ultimate reality in the person of God. And without knowing who God is, the true radical nature of love will never enter the kingdom, live the transformed life toward which Yeshua is trying to guide us, and will never understand how God and love, kingdom and transformed life are really all the same thing. Find one, find them all. 
But wait, again, didn't Jesus tell us to believe and not doubt? This last citation here at John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Sounds like a call to orthodoxy again, doesn't it? To certainty versus doubt. But the only reason that it sounds that way is because we've domesticated Jesus. We've familiarized him. We've recreated him in our image. Jesus was so radical that we can't even get our arms around it. That's why looking at his message from a Hebrew point of view is the way to try to get back some of the shock and awe, some of the outrage and disturbance that Jesus caused when he was breaking people through everything that they thought they had known for centuries, even millennia. For him to do that, for him to break us out, he is so radical then, he is so radical now, calling us out of our familiar places, calling us out of our comfort zones, asking us to question everything that we think we know, telling us unless we're willing to do that. And he puts it as hating father and mother and sister and brother and even your own life. Then you can't go where he's going. You can't follow him unless you see how radical this, uh, this way is and that there is no other way to the Father but through him, through this way. It can't happen. We need permission to use our common sense again, our spiritual common sense again, because it's been beaten out of us in ways that we don't really have a conscious contact with. To see where we've lost the radical way of Jesus is what our conscious, our common sense can give back to us. To believe Jesus, as he's talking about here, is to have journeyed through the doubt and through the fear and gotten across to another kind of assurance, one that's not just cognitive, but is based in experience, which gives us true trust. There's no way to get to trust except through that experience processing, feeling the doubt, feeling that dislocation that happens when we leave the familiar place. Let me end with this. If our desire is the engine, then our common sense is the rudder. Those of us who are most invested in any school of thought, who spent the most time studying, training, practicing, are the ones most in need of asking that 17-year-old's question, because our common sense may have the most layers of accumulated dust. We can use our common sense as a sort of divining rod, the forked branch fabled to vibrate in the presence of water, to guide us to the right questions that will lead us not necessarily to the right answers, but to the right experiences that will convince us of the truth. There really is no other way, which is what Yeshua, Yeshua meant when he said he was the way, that no one comes to the Father but through him through that way of living life as he experienced it. From the lips of Shakespeare's Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy because the most important questions are not so easily asked. What do you ask when you don't know what you don't know? Why would you ask when what you do know seems to be all there is? But if we are simply willing to begin the journey, there will come the shattering moment when we get the first glimpse of a little man behind a green curtain working the controls of a world we never knew existed. And no matter how fleeting the glimpse, it can't be unseen 
and everything is changed. That's what it's like to break through and see kingdom from Jesus' point of view. You see it once and everything is changed. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful to be your children. We want to break through and know more and more exactly what that means. What it means to be your heir, what it means to be your son, what it means to be your daughter. We want to be as close to you as we possibly can. We want to know you as well as we can possibly know you. Help us to give ourselves permission to question again, to look at our faith as if for the first time and see what's really there, to test it against your word and to see your word for what it's really saying so we can bring all this together and know you like we've never known you before. We want to go deeper, Lord, and deeper again. Thank you for everything that you do to guide us along the way. Thank you for being the God that you are and always drawing us right into your embrace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.